0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Robin Efren, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We will discuss her article, Trade Secrets, Extraterritoriality and Jurisdiction, which is published in the Wake Forest Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Robin. Hi. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was really fun reading your article, which combines two of my favorite case, intellectual property and civil procedure in one, which is is pretty rare. (laughs) Um, But I was wondering if for listeners, you, you could start by talking a little bit about what a trade secret is and what Congress has done around trade secrets that you think has implicated some important jurisdictional questions.
1: So trade secrets are interesting. They're uh, a little bit of an intellectual property orphan. They don't get the same top billing as copyrights and trademarks and patents. Uh, And that is because they're not really a construction of the law. They are knowledge and know-how that a person or maybe a company is going to protect by keeping it secret, right? So it's something of value that is based on knowledge and know-how. And as long as they keep it secret, then it gets protection under the law. But unlike trademarks or copyrights, or especially patents, it's not something that you affirmatively disclose and get ex-ante protection for, right? So you don't say, I have this thing, here's what it is, please protect it for me and allow me to make money off of it. Instead, you know what it is, right? And it's only when There is an allegation that it's been stolen or violated that people will then come back and say, yes, in fact, this particular know-how was a trade secret and it's entitled to protection under various laws.
0: Okay. So historically, trade secrets have primarily been protected by state law. But in recent years, Congress has been stepping in to provide federal protection for trade secrets. And you've written about this issue from a jurisdictional standpoint a couple of times. I'm wondering if you could talk about that shift from state to federal protection of trade secrets and kind of how and why it happened.
1: Yeah. So again, it's a really interesting contrast with other types of intellectual property. So- you know, for things like patents, that is so federal that it's in the Constitution, right? And so we have constitutional protection of that, and statutes, the uh, Patent and Trademark Office. And so for the sort of top three intellectual property, there's always been sort of a rich federal statutory regime that creates all sorts of entitlements and liabilities And some of them do exist alongside state law remedies, right? So it's not that it's necessarily exclusively federal for all three of those. But trademark, right, since it is often something that comes out of situations that look like contracts or torts, right, an employment situation or a conversion situation where you're stealing something, these are causes of action that kind of grew out of those traditional state law causes of action, like conversion and tort or breach of contract, or tortious interference in contract, those traditional things. Um, As society became kind of high tech, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, and as we moved into kind of a global IP regime with the TRIPS agreement, there was a push to protect trade secrets at the federal level. But what's interesting is that the first time that happened in 1996, which is the Economic Espionage Act, that's a criminal law statute, and again, that's a very interesting choice, right? When we think about the traditional forms of IP, some of them do have criminal enforcement aspects, and in fact, you can read some great papers like Irina Monta has written about um, criminal law and copyright. But traditionally, those are mostly civil law regimes. Right? Um, mm. But trade secrets, it was seen as this threat, this threat from the outside. And so we were going to protect it with criminal law. So that was a federal law enacted in 1996, and it criminalized the theft of trade secrets. But what's interesting is that it built off of that state common law and uniform statutory law basis for what a trade secret is, what misappropriation is. And then it made it into essentially a federal crime. And it granted sort of a very broad extraterritorial um, jurisdiction for trade secret violations. And that basically means when the US government is going to hold persons criminally liable for either conduct that occurred somewhat out of the United States or when those people or corporations are themselves located out of the United States, right? So that's clearly a very tricky situation when we're going to sort of step outside of our own borders and bring people back here, um, either figuratively or literally to hold them criminally liable. So that was the Economic Espionage Act of 1996. In the intervening years, there was sort of a greater and greater push for a federal civil law of trade secret theft. And that culminated 20 years later in 2016, which is the Defend Trade Secrets Act. And that statute takes the Economic Espionage Act, and it says everything that we've said is a crime is now also a federal private cause of action. And we're going to add some extra injunctive relief and some provisional remedies. Right. so you can see the really interesting path that this took, right something that started off as state common law and then became, in many cases state enacted law was then morphed into a federal criminal law and then that comes back into a, a private cause of action. Um, so it's it's taken, I think like a really fascinating path that intersects both with federalism, right state and federal jurisdiction and, and law, but also, civil and criminal law, which is not a story that um, I deal with all that often, but is a really interesting one where the, the criminal law and civil law are kind of borrowing from each other in terms of uh, when people can be liable for certain actions.
0: So it seems like in in both of the cases <clears throat> that you mentioned, both the kind of criminal Trade secret federal uh, enforcement, and also the creation of this federal civil remedy for trade secret violations. At least the story surrounding the justification for these laws was about extraterritorial, like foreign companies and foreign individuals stealing trade secrets from American companies, and the need for American companies to be able to enforce their trade secret rights against against foreign companies and foreign individuals a- and you point out in in this new paper or this recent paper that there are some potential jurisdictional problems with actually using <laughs> the act in uh, the rights granted under the act in in those ways so I, I was wondering if you could if you could just spend a minute sort of describing to listeners sort of what personal jurisdiction and the doctrine of forum non-convenience are and how they work. So they kind of have a basis for understanding why you think they might cause problems for this kind of extraterritorial uh, assertion of trade secret civil rights.
1: Yeah. So personal jurisdiction is the area of law. It is constitutional law and it's also state and federal enacted law that says before a court can issue a binding judgment over someone, they have to have power over that person or over that company, right? You, you can't just issue binding judgments over people that are not subject to your jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction is the doctrine that allows courts to determine when in a civil law case, a sovereign can assert their court's authority over that person. Now forum non conveniens is a little bit of a different doctrine. That is a common law doctrine that says <clears throat> even if a court in a particular jurisdiction has power over a person, maybe that person is so far away, right, either geographically or in terms of their conduct from this particular forum state, right, either a US state or the US as a whole, that we just don't think it makes sense to adjudicate this case here. This case really belongs somewhere else. So that's forum non right? Which says we could hear this case if we really wanted to, but it wouldn't be prudent here, right? So we're going to send it back to, for example, Scotland, right? That is the famous modern forum non-convenience case where we got some information from the Supreme Court.
0: Right. So in, in your paper, you observe that there have been a lot of changes in recent years in personal jurisdiction. And it seems like kind of increasing use uh, by a lot of defendants often of the forum non-convenience doctrine. Why is it you think that those changes or those doctrines might create problems for companies that want to enforce um, civil uh, claims for trade secret uh, infringement?
1: Yeah. So what you see here is this great collision course of, um, you know, some communities being a little bit too clever by half. So personal jurisdiction is a doctrine, just like forum non that has been subject to tremendous pressure from the business community over the past, you know, forty plus years as being too broad and too permissive, especially when it comes to foreign defendants, right? And so the idea is that we should be very careful and very limited about when a court in the United States is exercising personal jurisdiction over a foreign corporation for conduct that maybe has effects in a particular U.S. state. Like, say you sell a product and that product is then sold into New Jersey and injures someone there, But the manufacturer is in England, right? And the manufacturer doesn't directly make that sale. And so the business community says, you know, if these companies are exposed to the ordinary tort law regimes in the U.S. or, you know, our breach of contract laws, that that would be tremendously stifling for business, right? That it's not good to open up the, you know, big civil liability that the U.S. is famous for for all of these foreign companies. So they've worked very hard to create these doctrines in which it becomes really difficult to establish that a foreign defendant is really subject to personal jurisdiction in U.S. courts. And then even if they are, we have forum non-convenience that's right there behind personal jurisdiction for people to say, and you know what, this case is really about things that happened overseas anyway, so send it back. Well, at the same time that they were building that whole narrative, they've been telling, you know, kind of a different story when it comes to intellectual property and trade secrets and hacking, which is our country is under threat. We are under threat from foreign hackers who want nothing more than to steal all of our valuable information and take it back to their countries and monetize it and then sell it back to us in the form of cheap goods or cheap source code or something like that. And so we need better tools to make sure that we can somehow control those barbarians at the gates, right, and to protect our information. But you can see now how these are problematic doctrines, because if you have spent 40 years constructing a wall around foreign conduct being subject to civil liability in the U.S., It's difficult to then turn around and say, let's make a federal statute that is sort of by its own terms designed to hold foreign parties liable for activity that they're doing in foreign countries, right? Like that was one of the stated concerns behind the EEA and the DTSA, right? That you have hackers who are sitting at a computer in, say, China or Serbia or something like that. They never set foot in the U.S., and yet they steal all of our stuff and our trade secrets, and that's terrible, and we should hold them to account, right? So that's kind of the collision course of the the two doctrines there.
0: Yeah, it's really a kind of classic case of American business wanting to have its cake and eat it too, it seems.
1: Right, and one of the things that I found um, really kind of interesting when I was researching the article, and, and not a lot of this went sort of above the line in the article itself, was following the US Chamber of Commerce because they are very active in both the legislative end of things, but also in protecting their interests in the courts. And so they have filed amicus briefs in all of the major personal jurisdiction cases, right? Not just at the Supreme Court, but some of the really important ones that were percolating in state Supreme Courts and in the uh, Federal Circuit Courts as well. Um, you know, and in each one of these briefs, you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce explaining, you know, how terrible and stifling it will be if any business interest outside of the U.S. is ever subject to our jurisdiction. And yet, they were one of the main proponents behind the D.T.S.A. Right? They were a big, big lobbying force in helping to draft that legislation and push it forward. Right? So you can see it's not just sort of conjecture and isolated business interests, right? You can just look at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and see they are pushing it, right? And I don't necessarily want to single them out as being a bad actor. It's just that, you know, as a group that um, purports to represent the interests of the U.S. business community, you can see how the U.S. business community itself has a, a little bit of a divided interest here, right? They want to insulate businesses from liability in most instances but then when it comes to protecting our own industry from what is seen as bad conduct from abroad um they realize that the walls that they might have constructed are actually restricting us business themselves
0: so in in your paper you give some specific examples that i think really effectively show why this tension is a real one and not merely a theoretical problem um and I was wondering if you could walk us through like, one of those examples just to kind of illustrate how it is that personal jurisdiction and form nonconvenience might create problems for actually implementing, especially the DTSA, against foreign defendants.
1: Yeah. So to kind of condense one of the examples that I give down – there was a case under the EEA. So this is a criminal case, but I used it as an example of, let's say we tried to have a civil case here, what would jurisdiction look like? Um, and the case is US v. Sinovel. And in that case, a Chinese company had once been a partner of an American company. It was a Massachusetts-based company that had some operations in Wisconsin. And um, eventually, the Chinese company decided that they wanted to produce their own products. And this was essentially software that was going to help run wind turbines. And so they uh, used two of their own employees in China, as well as a kind of disgruntled former employee who was a Serbian national working at one of their subsidiaries in Austria, to hack into the U.S. company's system steal their source code. Right then, they sell the information back to another company in Massachusetts, and the first company loses, um, you know, millions. They claim almost billions of dollars in business, uh, and it's a, a big mess. So, the problems here are: how do you get jurisdiction over all of these defendants? You know, the easiest case is going to be the company, right? If the company itself is targeting one of our interests in the United States. That is generally enough, right, under our personal jurisdiction laws to get them. So fine. But then you have forum nonconvenience, right, and you might have a court saying, yes, you, know, you hacked into a system in Wisconsin, but all of the stealing was going on in China and in Austria, right? All of the witnesses are there, the evidence is there. Right. under forum non-convenience doctrine, there is a decent case for not litigating this in the U.S. And then you have the individual defendants, right? And there were two Chinese nationals and the Serbian nationals. None of them set foot inside the United States, right? The Serbian national was the one who was working for the Austrian subsidiary of the U.S. company, right? So we have some personal jurisdiction law from a couple of years ago that talks about how you can't use subsidiaries to impute contacts to the parent company and vice versa, right? So that's a nice little wall that the business company has set up there. Well, now you have a problem, right? Because if somebody is going to use a foreign national who has access to a company through their subsidiary, right, that might not be enough of a contact with a US jurisdiction. So, you know, one of the things that I show in the article without getting too into the weeds is that there is a decent but not great case for personal jurisdiction, maybe over the Serbian national, probably not over the two Chinese nationals and possibly, you know, the best case over the company. So you can only get half the defendants. And then the other problem is it's not clear that you can get them all in one state because the contacts that the Serbian national had were uh, with a different state than the contacts that the company had, right? So the company had mainly contacts with Wisconsin and the Serbian national uh, mainly with Massachusetts, right? Or vice versa. So it's hard to get all of the defendants into one forum. And so that really shows that, you know, if the the whole point of federalizing this was that there was nefarious conduct happening outside of the United States that was too difficult to target with just ordinary state law remedies, right? But you can't fix that by making a national statute unless you can actually get jurisdiction over the people, right? Because then all you've done is to create liability for things that you'll never have jurisdiction over. Uh, And even if you do, right, the... The case for sort of dismissing something on forum non convenience grounds is pretty high, right? So that's the example that I uh, that I go through in the article.
0: Could could Congress have kind of created more jurisdictional leeway when it passed the DTSa to try to address these issues? And do you know if that was something that, if if possible, anyone actually discussed?
1: So they definitely didn't discuss it. Um, I wish they had discussed it, but um, Congress had the temerity to debate this law while I was on maternity leave. So I I was otherwise engaged. Um, There were a number of other professors who presented some more pressing concerns, right? People who are uh, primarily IP scholars and had a lot of merits based objection to this law. But the jurisdiction idea was um, never really discussed very much. And Uh, You know, you can see the consequences of that. Now, what Congress could have done, um, that's a tough question as well. So they could have done a better job than they did. Right. So, for example, they could have authorized what is known as nationwide service of process. And what that means is that right now, personal jurisdiction in federal courts primarily borrows from state law unless the particular federal law that creates a cause of action has its own jurisdictional provisions. So for example, a lot of the securities laws have nationwide service of process, right? So you don't have to show that um, a particular defendant had minimum contacts with, say, Virginia. It's enough to say that they have minimum contacts with the U.S. So Congress could have done that, right? They could have said, this is a national problem. So we're not going to worry about whether, you know, this particular company had minimum contacts with Wisconsin. We're going to authorize nationwide service of process. But they didn't. My concern, though, is that even if they did, a lot of the problems that I raise with personal jurisdiction and certainly with non with form non convenience are constitutional issues. Right. Wh- mm-hmm. Which is to say that, you know, one of the things I point out in the article is that some of these defendants really only had contact with one particular state, right? And if it's not going to be enough for that state, it's not going to be enough for the U.S. as a whole either, right? Those contacts are still too minimum. I do think if they had authorized nationwide service of process that, um, you know, they would have a better chance of capturing these diffused things. And I should also say for the CivPro nerds out there who are wondering about this, There is something called Rule 4K2, which authorizes nationwide service of process for federal law causes of action. The problem is, is that to do that, you have to show that the defendant isn't subject to jurisdiction in anywhere else in the United States. That that kicks you back to the problem of getting everyone in one forum, which is that if you're going to use 4K2, then um, you might have some other defendants uh, over whom... There is personal jurisdiction somewhere, and then you have problems kind of getting everyone together. There's other reasons that 4K2 is sort of a notably ineffective tool, but it is <laughs> out there. And I know that all my CivPro friends will scream if I don't mention it. So there you go. That's 4K2.
0: So so Robin, the DTSA is, is still pretty new uh, as federal laws go, but ha- have we started to see any of the kind of jurisdictional problems you warn about cropping up? yet
1: so the answer is yes and no right so um there have uh been a few cases where that's been a problem um and i was kind of happy to see my article cited by a court in one of these cases because it's always nice to uh feel like um when we sit in our offices and and kind of dream up these problems that they will be useful to someone But the reality is, is that there have not been very many DTSA cases that have this issue. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a problem, right? So this is where I want to break down the yes and no thing. Um, And I think that there's, there's sort of two things that we can learn about it. One is that we don't know what we can't see, right? Which is that lawyers aren't stupid and they're not necessarily going to file expensive lawsuits over defendants where they think there will not be personal jurisdiction. So it, it, you know, it's not that we're necessarily going to see you know, this dramatic uptick in dismissals for lack of personal jurisdiction, right? We don't know what claims people aren't bringing, right? So to the extent that this law was meant to enable the enforcement of extraterritorial trade secret violations, we don't know what we can't see. So that's one problem. The other thing is that what we have seen under the DTSA is that there has been, in fact, an uptick in the number of uh, trade secret civil cases filed. Right. So there was a study done, um, I think it came out about nine months ago, that talked about what filings were like pre-DTSA and post. And so it showed not surprisingly that once there was a federal cause of action, There were more cases, federal and state, being filed about trade secret theft. But here's what we know about those cases based on this study. Most of them fall into exactly the sort of fact pattern that everyone really knows what trade secrets are about, and that is the problem of the departing employee. So most of the time, when we're really dealing with the trade secret theft that people are worried about. It's not the sort of boogeyman of the anonymous hacker hiding behind a computer in some unknown foreign country, although that is a problem, right? We know that exists. The real threat, the people who have the easiest access to these informations, are departing employees. And so what we've seen is a tremendous uptick in the cases brought by employers. Now, here's where we see what I would conjecture, at least is the real purpose behind the DTSA, which was to get cases into federal court that couldn't be there, right? So this is the secret part where even though you think my paper is about personal jurisdiction, it's actually about subject matter jurisdiction. Mm. Because here is the problem. When you have an action between an employer and an employee, it is really hard to get diversity jurisdiction because most of the time, because uh, this is how employment works, um, although I guess this is less true in the sort of remote working economy, employers are citizens of the same state uh, in which their employees are, right, or often are. And so diversity jurisdiction is hard. um, And sometimes meeting the amount in controversy can be hard as well, too, right? If you're talking about an ordinary employee, they might not be on the hook for an excess of $75,000. So a lot of these cases were in state court um, because it was a state law cause of action and they had no route into federal court. So Mm. what did companies really want? I think they wanted a federal forum. This isn't surprising, right? Like, where do you think is going to be a comfier place for employers? Is it going to be the state court? home field advantage where you know the judge and the jurors are going to be rooting for the little guy employee who kind of stuck it to the mean old employer and said you know that like the it, you know the departing employee problem is kind of a mic drop problem like i hate you um mm. by the way i've downloaded three terabytes of information and i'm going to start my own business mic drop the box, right and there's some yeah. really great fact patterns on this like um there, there's a great sperm bank case from Washington State lately, oh uh, which I, I don't even want to know, like, what was in some of the information that was stolen there. So that's what's going on, right? And so, what you see here is a situation in which suddenly we do, in fact, have a route to federal court. And some of the things that give us clues as to uh, why they really want this are that that is where a lot of the new DTSA cases have come from. Like they are most, they're not all, but they are mostly departing employee cases, right? So what is really interesting, this is sort of a, you know, a, a very interesting public policy story because the law was sold to Congress and sold to the American public. I say as if like the American public was hanging on everywhere <laughs> in DTSA in the spring of 2016. Uh, But it was sold as, you know, we need to protect American industry from these terrible Chinese hackers. Um, And, you know, that's not really the threat, I think, in the end that the business community was worrying about, first of all, because it's not clear exactly what kind of a threat that is, right? There are problems with people taking stuff, in our country and out of our country. And it's not just China, it is many countries, right? But that's kind of how it was sold. But in reality, you know, they weren't eyeing, you know, these big lucrative lawsuits against, you know, some company in India, for example. I think what they really wanted was a federal forum to just file these ordinary lawsuits against departing employees. And in some ways, I kind of look at the DTSA as a trial run for this bigger project that some people in Congress have of opening up diversity jurisdiction. So you might be aware that there is legislation pending that would get rid of the maximum diversity rule under Strawbridge v. Curtis, uh, which says you only get into federal court for state law claims if all of the defendants are citizens of different states from all of the plaintiffs and instead have a minimum diversity rule, which says you can go into federal court with your state law claims as long as there is at least one party that is a citizen of a different state from somebody on the other side, right? And so what I see is this is a test run about opening up the federal courts. You know, Um, again, what I would kind of say to the, you know, legislators and lobbyists and anyone else who's listening is be careful what you wish for, because right now this is a pet project of the right, and conservative business interests. And that is because in this moment, the federal courts are considered to be a far more hospitable forum for them than the state courts are. That can change, right? There have been times in history, in areas of law, particularly in civil rights and maybe employment discrimination, where it was the opposite, right? Where it is plaintiffs who want to be in federal court and want to be away from state court, right? So, you know, the danger, right, to the extent that you are in favor of this, of having these broad authorizations of access to federal courts is that that might work for you now, um, but it might not be great for you in another time, right? And that's sort of the, to bring it back to the paper, the story that I wanted to tell in the first place, where, you know, this whole architecture that the business community set up to keep out foreign defendants turned out to not work so well for them as soon as they wanted to insulate our own businesses from these foreign defendants.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Classic. Classic move there from from American business. So, so in closing, Robin, um, I, I noted that, you know, you're – your law school note was actually about the EEA. And here in this paper, you've returned to very similar subject matter. And I kind of just wanted to ask about your kind of experience of kind of returning to issues and problems that you'd been thinking about for so long and, you know, what that was like and sort of did it, what it meant to you to kind of go back to something that you'd actually been thinking about so long ago.
1: Um, Well, it was super satisfying to uh, have this note that really stayed live over the years. Um, I would always get, you know, like a little uh, endorphin rush every time I'd see that somebody cited it, especially, um, you know, if maybe a court or uh, it was cited in in some sort of public policy forum. So that was exciting. Um, It was a little disheartening to have written a note that was criticizing the extraterritorial application of this law and then returned to the project because Congress decided that like, not only was that unproblematic, but we should have more of it and we should extend it to the civil law context. So, um, you know, in that sense, it was like, okay, well, I guess I still have uh, stuff to write about, but I I might as well give um, a little anecdote. I don't know if there are law students who listen to this podcast, but I should tell you about my experience writing the note because I think it's helpful. So when I was in law school and I was on the NYU Law Review with you, Brian, I, should say, <laughs> um, I I had to write a student note, and you know, as I'm sure many students have experienced, you're like, okay, I've I've had exactly one year of law school. I don't really know that much. What on earth am I going to write that's going to be a scholarly contribution to anything? So I went to my civil procedure professor, Rochelle Dreyfus, who is also an IP person. And in fact, these days, I think she's teaching almost exclusively in IP and international IP. Um, And she did not give me a topic. Instead, she said, you know what you should do? You should find a federal statute from five years ago, because that means that it's been around for long enough to have some action and you'll see that there's something to write about, but it hasn't been around for so long that everyone's already written about it and it's over. So I Googled, or, or maybe I did a West law search. It was like recent federal statute. And I just mm-hmm. did like, you know, and I put the time for five years ago and that's how I came up with the economic Espionage <laughs> Act of 1996. You'll notice I started law school in 2001. Um, And I looked at some other statutes, uh, and that seemed to just sort of like trip all of my wires of interest. It had IP, which is something that I've always had a passing interest in. It had all of these jurisdictional aspects. And of course I grew up to be a civil procedure and federal courts scholar. It had these business interests. I also teach a lot of business law things. So, um, I still recommend that formula to my students as well, right? So that is the really unexciting way in which I came on that topic in the first place. But as you can see, um, that one Google search that I ran probably in 2002 uh, continues to bear fruits today all the way into 2019. So I highly recommend it.
0: That's awesome. Well, Robin, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: I'd like to tell you about the strangest secret in the world. Not long ago, Albert Schweitzer, the great doctor and Nobel Prize winner, was being interviewed in London, and a reporter asked him, Doctor, what's wrong with men today? The great doctor was silent a moment, and then he said, Men simply don't think. And it's about this that I want to talk with you. We live today in a golden age. This is an era that man has looked forward, dreamed of, and worked toward for thousands of years. But since it's here, we pretty well take it for granted. We in America are particularly fortunate to live in the richest land that ever existed on the face of the earth, a land of abundant opportunity for everyone. But do you know what happens? Let's take a hundred men who start even at the age of 25. Do you have any idea what will happen to those men by the time they're 65? These 100 men who all start even at the age of 25 believe they're going to be successful. If you asked any one of these men if he wanted to be a success, he'd tell you that he did. And you'd notice that he was eager toward life, that there was a certain sparkle to his eye, an erectness to his carriage, and life seemed like a pretty interesting adventure to him. But by the time they're 65, one will be rich. Four will be financially independent. Five will still be working. Fifty-four will be broke. Now think a moment. Out of the 100, Only five make the grade. Why do so many fail? What has happened to the sparkle that was there when they were 25? What's become of the dreams, the hopes, the plans? And why is there such a large disparity between what these men intended to do and what they actually accomplished?